This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So I have to say, Tim, we were taping our weekend show this morning, and you know it's a crazy week when virus news is overshadowed in our world by the phenomenon that is GameStop, which we are going to continue talking about over the next few hours. It's the story. It is the story. But let's not forget, the other big story is the virus. Yeah, and look, um, it does feel like we are getting to a point where it's a, the sad reality is that thousands of people dying, our fellow citizens every yeah. day, yeah. is not the headline anymore. No, and um, and though the numbers are still troubling, even though some of them are coming down, let's talk about it because there's a lot of stuff going on, including we talked about the variant, uh, the South African variant for the virus, uh, finding cases in South Carolina. Dan Polsky is with us. He's professor of health policy and management at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He has studied health economics and healthcare policy. The Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dan's with us on the phone from Philadelphia. Dan, good to have you here with Tim and myself. Um, There is a fair amount of headlines out and about there. Uh, What do you think is most important for our audience to kind of focus on right now when it comes to COVID and the vaccine rollout? Um, I guess uh, patience. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's patience with a C, not with a T, right? Yes, exactly. Um, You know, I think uh, there's a lot of optimism that everything's going to get back to normal, but it's going to take some time. Um, And, you know, the vaccines are in shortage. So all of the issues that I think are um, out there around, you know, the anxiety about getting my dose, when am I going to get it? What's going wrong? Um, You know, it it, it comes back to that. They're just, you know, it's going to take a little time to produce vaccines for, for everyone around the world. Dan, I, I got to ask, um, you know, Carol mentioned uh, the South African strain being found in, in South Carolina today. Uh, we we don't know, based on testing, how effective the existing vaccines are against new strains that emerge. Um, but we do know that the drug manufacturers are already altering their formulas in order to address this. Do, should Should people put off getting a vaccine, that first shot, to try to get one that actually uh, uh, protects against new strains? Uh, No, don't put it off. Uh, Get your vaccine uh, when it's your turn to get your vaccine for sure. Um, But, uh, you know, I think the new variants um, bring up, you know, something similar to flu in that over the long, we're going to be living with this um, virus for a long time. Mm. Um, for years, um, and it's going to keep evolving, just like we need a flu shot every year. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we end up needing, a, you know, to get the COVID, mm. whatever variant of the year into our um, shot, um, just as part of how we you know, conduct our daily lives. You know, I, I, I groaned when I heard that, but then I thought to myself, hey, that's not so bad. You know, getting the flu shot's not that big of a deal. Right. Yeah, it's not that big of a deal, but also getting flu isn't that big of a deal i mean it's it's still you know serious can be serious for people especially if they're vulnerable um you know right now COVID is certainly much more serious than the flu so that's i think where the the difference is getting a flu shot isn't a big deal but 
you know, getting getting COVID certainly is worse. And I think that's one of the fear on the new variants is just so much uncertainty. And you think, okay, we're, we've finally got this tackled. And then these variants come up and it just brings up the fact that, you know, this is something we're going to have to live with one way or another for quite some time. When you say that we may have to get a vaccine for COVID on a regular basis, just like we do for a flu vaccine. Will it be a case that it's the same thing that if you don't, oh, you might get a little sick? Or is it a case that if you don't get it, you're going to get really sick and maybe create some problems in society? Um, you know, I think it's the same messaging as, as flu, that you know, every person who gets the flu vaccine, you're not only protecting yourself, but you're protecting others, particularly those most vulnerable that actually can't get the flu vaccine. So that's certainly... Um, going to be the case for for the coronavirus vaccine as well, um, uh, but you know, and, that, and then I think on top of that, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that you know, like a an a expert in in like uh, you know, Dr. Fauci can explain better than myself. But um, if if the vaccine doesn't have really um, great coverage. Uh, variants that can spin out when, you know, a lot, there's a lot of people covered, but not enough people covered. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the virus is, you know, people are fighting against the virus and then the virus kind of fights back. And, and the one who's fighting back, the virus who's fighting back is a little bit stronger than the one that was there before. So mm. that's kind of the scientific challenge why it's so important to get vaccinated. Dan, um, we only have about 30 seconds left, but I know you've been looking very closely at the rollout of the vaccine. Um, we've heard a lot about speed bumps. In your opinion, how are we doing so far? Because this is a race. Uh, well, we've been doing pretty poorly. Um, uh, but, you know, we now have, uh, you know, Biden's goal of 100 million doses in 100 days. Um, it's going to be some a lot more bumps in the road uh, to kind of get to the point where um, things are rolling at a pace where I feel like that can be achieved. So um, I think it's a worthy goal, and I'm optimistic. Let's get back to Dr. Dan Polsky, professor of health economics and policy at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Health. He joins us on the phone from Philadelphia. Uh, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dan, I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on what we, we just heard uh, from Jason Farley at the Bloomberg, uh, who's a professor of nursing, at uh, talking all about how we need to ramp up production of vaccine to get those shots in arms. What is the right way to ramp up production and then also ramp up distribution and then administration of vaccine? Um, I would say that uh, the, the challenge of ramping up distribution is, you know, more, uh, more challenging and that it's so distributed. So to ramp up production, you know, we can re- rely on, on industry um, that I think has that capacity. But to ramp up distribution, it's like inventing a new company. Um, you know, it's putting up places to distribute vaccines. It's training people how to do it. Um, the staffing challenges, the logistical challenges, the information system challenges are, um, you know, we, there's just no infrastructure in place to really um you know, ramp up quickly and reliably. But I think one thing that's so frustrating to people is that it's not like we had no warning, right? Like this is something that we knew since, you know, some people since February, most people since March that we would need to distribute and administer vaccine. And manufacture tons and tons of vaccines. 
Well, but the, the manufacturing... And we're not mad at you. We're just trying to understand. <laughs> how did but it I think, happen? Uh, I, I, I mean, I think it was, you know, a, a leadership a vacuum in, in the prior administration. Uh, you know, I was part of this uh, panel talking, you know, planning for uh, one aspect, which is, you know, how to distribute vaccines equitably when it's in shortage. And we were talking back in the summer and making really detailed plans for that, but we, we, we just wanted information about what the administration was doing to plan for this period that we all knew was going to start, you know, six months in the future. Right. And we never got any information. We were frustrated. Like, why, why aren't they sharing any information? Only now do we realize there was no information to share. It's like planning for, it's, it's like planning for war, right? Planning for a war. You know it's coming. We know we have to manufacture a lot of tanks. I'm being really basic here. And then, okay, we make the tanks, but wow, how do we get it to people in the field who need it? How do we get it to, you know, the members of the military? I mean, I feel like that's what we did. And and I just find it staggering. And I do know the Biden administration has been, has been rather frank about saying that maybe the situation was a lot worse than we anticipated and they're getting up to speed. But I guess I just don't understand why as a nation, all of the companies involved just say, okay, Let's go on, you know, into overdrive and just let's ramp up manufacturing of the vaccines and do everything and anything to get them out there. Yeah. Um, well, the, the the issue with the manufacturing is actually it's quite a miracle and that a typical way of vaccines develop is the manufacturing doesn't start till after everything has been approved. But this was such an extraordinary circumstance that everything was being done in parallel. Um, so while the drug was being tested, manufacturing was being ramped up, and uh, it's actually been quite a feat uh, mm. compared to the past. It's a highly regulated industry. It's hard to do these things, but tremendous amount of um, collaboration uh, between industry partners, new partnerships being developed, and, and working with government. So you know, while it's certainly not fast enough, and there's a lot of challenges to get it at a rate that I think people would feel would be, you know, even a B, we'll probably not hit a B or, um, but, you know, I think the, pers- the larger perspective is that um, it has been, you know, a historic feat of development and of manufacturing. It's just um, the demand is so right. um, extraordinary. Dan, we only have about 15 seconds left. Your best estimation for uh, when everybody who wants a vaccine will be able to get one here in the United States? Um. I would say, uh, you know, through the year, end of the year. Oof, that's wow. That's a yeah. lot different than what we heard from the president earlier this earlier this week, who said that it'll be by this spring. Yeah. Well, it's, it's yeah. Dan, thank you so much um, and really appreciate it. Dr. Dan Polsky, professor of health economics and policy at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, uh, on the phone from Philadelphia, and of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Listen, I know you and I kind of hammer. He was such a gem, but, you know, I think we all kind of want to know, like, when, when do we start to get back to normal? When will we be vaccinated? I'm so sick of this pandemic. <laughs> I know too. I'm not the only one. All right. So great story. Pillow King, Mike Lindell. You know him from those late night commercials. You also know him because a couple years ago, uh, Bloomberg Businessweek did a deep dive into him. He's an ally of former President Donald Trump. And as reporter Josh Dean is back writing about him again, laugh at him, shun his business, sue him. The MyPillow CEO will not stop trying to prove Donald Trump got cheated. That's the headline. Josh joining us on the phone in New York, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the Axis line in Brooklyn. Tim and I could not get enough of this story, Joel. 
boy, I, I could, um, but that was mainly just because of, of what it is. But, you know, backstory here, four years ago, Josh Dean wrote basically the definitive story on Mike Lindell and just the preposterous business success story um, that that is my pillow. And mm -hmm. this is a guy who went from basically being a crack addict um, to uh, an unlikely entrepreneur with actually like a pretty successful business. Um, and Josh actually did that story four years ago for the magazine. And it happened to coincide basically with the first couple visits that Lindell had with Trump. And obviously, if you know anything about Mike Lindell, the past four years um, have become much Trumpier, um, let's say. <laughs> and uh, so when uh, the the administration was in its last days, we kind of reached out to Josh and said, what do you what do you think about getting back in touch with Mike Lindell? And so that led to a pretty memorable conversation that Josh had with him and this feature. Um, Josh, what was the what was the opening question? How did the conversation start with with Mr. Lindell? I don't even know if I needed to ask a question. <laughs> I think I, I think I just said hello. <laughs> Off and, and running. Started, started just going. I mean, that man is. Um, I think I said in the original story. You know, he's he's been off cocaine and crack now for a long time, but it's like his body is permanently stuck in a in a cocaine mania. Like, I I don't think he's used drugs in a long time, but he talks like someone who who maybe just did it for so long that he can't he can't control himself anymore. Well, so listen, though, he's definitely an ally of Donald Trump. We know that. And you lay it out really well. Why has he continued to be so adamant, despite the court cases that have shown that there was no fraud in the election? Why has he, and I know this is when he was off and running and talking with you, why has he, though, continued to say there was fraud? I mean, he's, he's just one of those people who's so convinced of, of something that no amount of information or evidence would ever change his mind. I mean, he would tell you, you know, for hours on end that, that he's 100% convinced and that he has this, you know, quote-unquote forensic evidence of machine hacking and all this stuff. And talking about examples like this man in Italy who allegedly confessed in court to hack. Well, I mean, some of these stories you just have to do a little bit of digging to realize. Like, it's either been debunked or it's, it's being spun in a slightly... Um, disingenuous way so that the evidence isn't really evidence but I mean you know unless he's completely doing this for show and I don't think that he is he truly believes that you know he's here to save Donald Trump's presidency and to, mm. to save democracy well Josh I was so surprised to, to read that he's not concerned at all by this uh, what you call a big danger, the Dominion voting systems uh, having threatened him with a defamation suit. Uh, you write that a decision in Dominion's favor could destroy my pillow as a company. Uh, why is he not concerned about this? This is a big deal. Yeah, I mean, here is probably the, the, the most convincing evidence that he truly believes what he's saying, that it's not some kind of act, because yeah, I mean, this is a potentially an existential threat to my pillow, like a, a, a decisive judgment. And we're talking like, you know, I think Dominion's going after these these defendants for hundreds of millions of dollars. If they choose to sue him um, and he loses, then he could lose the company. But he thinks that he's right. So he believes, as he, as he tells it, I'm going to go to court and I'll present my evidence and I will prevail. I mean, it's mm. from the outside, objectively, it seems crazy and self-destructive, but he doesn't see it that way. 
Uh, what do you have to say about how his business has been doing? Because there was this photograph taking, taken of him uh, leaving the White House with what appeared to be um, some papers that referenced martial law. Uh, and, and I'm curious, like, A, what do you say about that? And then B, how has how his business been doing? Well, the martial law thing, he said those were not his notes. So basically, he was going to see Trump to present his, you know, quote-unquote evidence of, of, like, election fraud. And then a lawyer friend of his, who he wouldn't name, gave him a second set of notes that included um, that martial law reference. So he's like, I don't even know what martial law is. That wasn't me. Um, as for the business, he's, you know, again, he, he thinks that this is good for his business. And, and it may be. I mean, in the short term, he says... Sales are up. He's hiring more people. He's actually added floor space because, you know, I think there's probably everything is political today, right? So yeah. people may be buying pillows as a reaction to what they see as like left wing blowback. Yeah, it's interesting. Is he really a buddy of Donald Trump's? No, I mean, I asked okay. him, I said, have you, talk, have you talked to the president? He said, no. It's like, I don't have his phone number. We've only met a handful of times. But I mean, he loves wow. the guy. He thinks, thinks Trump is amazing. I mean, they've had some meetings. He appeared at the that famous or infamous, I guess, um, coronavirus briefing. He's been on, you know, in, in tons of rallies, but he said they're not friends. They've just met a handful of times. And what about what else his... do you guys talk about? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Joel. <laughs> what else do you guys well, talk about, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> we talked about um, the, pandemic, <laughs> the pandemic and the um, coronavirus. Mike does not believe that it's the threat that we all um, believe it to be. And he takes a supplement that he also sells that he thinks keeps him safe. He will not be getting the vaccine. Wow. That's shocking to hear. I mean, I guess there is some vaccine skepticism. Um, What about his political ambitions? Well, for, for a lot of the past year, there's been pretty rampant speculation in Minnesota that he'll run for governor. And he has not discouraged that. Um, I think the Minnesota Republican Party has has essentially propped him up as a likely candidate. He's now saying he's not so sure. I mean, hmm. this is how far in the rabbit hole he is. He he believes like this fraud was so bad and, and so um, widespread that no election going forward can ever be trusted if there are machines used. I mean, this is basically his position now. So yeah. he's like, why would I run for governor? Because well, they'll just steal it from me. I just want to know, uh, Jane Krakowski, they're not dating. Can we just set the record straight? <laughs> Definitely not dating. That one, that story really surprised me. Hey, well, listen. Yeah, well, Josh, real quick, what are the pillows like? Very briefly. You got him uh, off Jane Krakowski I, to talk I know. pillows? I, I don't know. People, Jeez, people love these pillows, right? I, you know, I, I, I'm one of those people who, I, I like a memory foam pillow, so I don't use <laughs> I have to say, my husband one night, because we both were not sleeping, we bought some. Uh, I'm not going to say. <laughs> we have a lot of different kinds of pillows on our bed. Uh, Josh Dean, it's a great read. We're going to feature it in the weekend story as well. Uh, and Joel Weber, thank you as well. Really appreciate it. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So yeah, a top story this hour, this day, this week. And I already know that in December, when we look back, it's going to be a top story this year. It's GameStop and the like. Uh, other names that uh, we don't usually talk about, but all of a sudden they've been really dominating the trade in terms of big moves. Yeah, look, it's it's not just GameStop, right? It's other stocks as well. And and, and yeah. look, we're, we're just learning moments ago that the Senate panel, a Senate panel is planning to hold a hearing on the current state of the stock market in this prompted by the activity that we've seen this 
this week. Totally. All right. So let's get into it and let's get you up to speed uh, on some of the day's headlines because they are happening uh, as we speak. Let's bring in Bloomberg News Cross Asset reporter Katie Greifeld uh, and talk about kind of where we are. We're also going to get to Jennifer Schulp. She's Director of Financial Regulation Studies over at the Cato Institute, and we'll bring her in in just a moment. Katie, though, set the scene. Um, where are we when it comes to what's going on with GameStop and other stocks that have had some big moves and the plating, the trading platforms that they trade on? Well, it's very much a fluid situation. Obviously, the big story today is that you have apps like Robinhood and other brokerages limiting trading on some of those popular names such as GameStop um, and some of the other, we've been calling them meme stocks that have just taken off this week. And so interestingly, I mean, as you mentioned, GameStop is thinking today, as is AMC Holdings. And you have seen the benchmark indexes bounce back. For the S&P, for example, it's having its best game gain in two months, whereas yesterday it was the worst fall since October. So right. clearly a total flip in, in who's leading and what's leading. And part of the theory is that all of the hedge funds who were just getting crushed yesterday on their short bets, now that that speculation is curbed, at least temporarily, they're basically regrowing and re-leveraging on their positions. So Katie, when you say restricting trades on platforms like Robinhood, what, ex- what exactly do you mean? Does that mean that if somebody holds Robinhood and they want to sell it, they, I mean, excuse me, holds GameStop and they want to sell it, they can't necessarily do that? That's the question. So it's, it's a bit different across apps. So Robinhood, for example, I mean, there are restrictions placed on shares and options. And the fact that options trading is restricted is a really interesting nuance here because that's theorized the fact that you saw just such rampant call buying in some of these names. People were saying that's fueling this bullish feedback loop. So obviously with these restrictions and the fact that you can't trade options, it's clearly having right. an impact on the stock, whether because you know the fact that people aren't really able to trade, the retail traders at least, hedge funds can still trade those names. Or, I mean, perhaps yeah. it's just a turn in sentiment that, you know, this idea that there could be further regulation coming. Yeah, we're certainly uh, looking into all of that. Katie, thank you so much. Our own Katie Greifeld, cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News. Let's get to our next guest. We want to bring in Jennifer Schlop. She is Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. She focuses on the regulation of securities and capital markets. She's also a former director uh, in the Department of Enforcement at FINRA. She joins us on the phone in Washington, D.C. Jennifer, forgive me if I, Schlop it is, right? It's Schultz. Okay. You got so, it right. Okay. <laughs> Want to make sure. Um, really appreciate you being here. As you know, uh, our top story here. What do you make of what we're seeing in terms of the trades initially that all of a sudden got a lot of these trading platforms' attention for them to all of a sudden start restricting them? Well, I think it's a powerful message about the, the power of retail trading that, that heretofore Wall Street's been able to generally ignore the retail trader. And we're, we're really seeing that that's no longer the case. And with the rise of low-cost trading apps and this kind of increased activity on the chat boards, we're, we're really seeing actions here that, that are going to make Wall Street stand up and take notice 
about retail trading. Um, maybe not call them dumb money anymore. Um, that might be a harder habit to break than just this one time. Well, I'm, I'm wondering what it means for potential regulation. I mean, we're hearing lawmakers weigh in. A Senate panel is going to hold a hearing on the current state of the stock market. This reached the White House briefing room yesterday. Uh, two of the three people yesterday, the first three people to ask questions to Fed Chair Jerome Powell at the press conference, asked questions about games, GameStop specifically. Um what is potential regulation that you know that that we could see out of as a result of this? I, mean, I think there's going to be a difficult road to walk in trying to find any sort of regulatory path here, um, and I think that Congress is going to find that as they start digging in. This is obviously an unusual situation, um, although rallies and bubbles are not, um, nor is short selling. This is just a, a different twist with different players taking different positions than where they've been before. Um, We might see some additional regulation in looking at how short selling operates. Right. um, Just the mechanics. um, So that some of these feedback feedback loops that we're seeing here, um, that might be a place to take a look to see if there's a a better way to do things to, to prevent the feedback. Do you think Robinhood's wrong? Interactive Brokers is wrong? Do you think they should not have restricted trading? I think that's a tough question. Um, I think as a matter of principle, um, the traders should be able to trade, but there's also um, risks to the brokerage houses at issue here as well, um, clearing risks, that I'm not sure that Robinhood or some of these other brokerage houses would be able to continue to operate through the clearing firms and through the clearing process given how fast the stock was rising. So I think as a... You know, a matter of principle, yes, um, individual traders should be allowed to keep trading. Well, so it sounds like but a technological limitation. Right. More logistical, right? And yeah. Logistical and just capital. Um, in order for the firms to be able to put up money um, to clear through the settlement process, I just don't know that there's not capital limitations on what Robinhood can do hmm. to support this trading at this point. Do you think um, this- I think that's something we're going to find out as we move through these lawsuits? Yeah, listen, we're going to we're going to come back and talk some more, but we've got about forty seconds here. Do you think this could potentially be the end of Robinhood, though? Uh, I don't think so, but I think they could have done some reputational damage that they're going to have to come back from. Wow. All right. Listen, sit tight, Jen. Jen, we're going to. Uh, do a little bit of news, and then we'll come back with uh, Jennifer Schulp. She's director of financial regulation studies over at the Cato Institute, and she's a former uh, director at FINRA, specifically uh, at their Department of Enforcement. I mean, a lot of questions coming out, and you want markets to move and operate smoothly, efficiency. It's why we had trading stops put in right after some of the big stops we saw from from the 80s. We did different measures after the financial crisis, um, but you have to make sure it's still free markets and you know, free for everybody. Yeah, you do. And especially with a, with a, a platform like Robinhood, I think a fascinating story following mm-hmm. this will be what is the reputational damage, if any, to Robinhood and to what extent can it hold on to its customers? So earlier this week, NASDAQ CEO Adina Friedman participated in the Bloomberg The Year Ahead virtual event. Uh, and she was asked about the trading that we've seen this week. She talked about specifically how the NASDAQ handles potential market disruptions from social media. Check it out. We basically have some tools that track uh, changes in chatter on social media. We think that there's something unusual or, you know, even worse, nefarious going on. We can halt the stock and then we will contact the company, make sure there's no news. 
All right. And that was, uh, again, NASDAQ CEO at Dana Friedman. So what they do when there's, you know, social media chatter, which we know, Tim, has been a big part of the run-ups that we've seen in GameStop. There have been conversations going on for weeks. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, there have. I mean, it makes sense given that this is, you know, it, uh, I, I guess what it, what's what's kind of surprising about this whole story, Carol, is this yeah. stuff was happening back in the 1990s well, on message boards, right? The difference is, I think, the apps and the commission-free trading and that, that you're allowed to do now. But, I mean, people have been have been talking talking their book for since books existed. Exactly. It happens all the time. So let's get back to Jennifer Schultz. She's Director of Financial Regulation Studies over at uh, the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. She's also a former director in the Department of Enforcement at uh, FINRA, still with us on the phone from Washington, D.C. What do you make of what you just heard from NASDAQ CEO Adina Friedman about how they deal with talk about social media? And Tim's right. I mean, Go back to, you know, the, the dot-com bubble. I mean, people were talking a, a, about things. Um, what's different? What's new? What do we need to do? You know, I, I agree with Tim. This is, this is not new, so to speak. Um, and I don't fault NASDAQ at all for keeping an eye on social media, um, particularly where there might be misinformation or insider information that's been leaked. That's, that's great things for the... Um, for the exchanges to be keeping an eye on to see if there is a need to pause trading. Um, where, I, where I walk away a little bit is NASDAQ's statement yesterday that they would have stopped trading here for an extended period of time, um, kind of at least implicitly supporting some of the 30-day type ex- uh, suspensions of trading that the Secretary of State of Massachusetts, Bill Galvin, was supporting. Um, I think that gets in the way of actual market function. And this type of discussions, trading, talking your book, this, this is normal. Yeah. Um, even if the outcome here might not look, look, look normal at the moment. Well, that's what it, that was exactly my next question to you, Jennifer. I mean, are, mock, are markets functioning normally here? Is this what's supposed to be happening? I think the answer is yes. Um, I think that there's concern because there's a bubble, um, but, but bubbles are a part of our markets right. have been a part of markets since their inception. Um, we don't need to talk about tulips to know that. <laughs> right. Um, and the overall so market, if you look at it, I mean, today it's, you know, it, it's not like it's bringing down the overall market. And I do wonder if, if we are ignoring that and we shouldn't be. Uh, that, that the fact that the market rose today when it yeah. was pulling down a little bit is a sign that, that something is no, amiss? Well, I'm saying that something isn't, that you're seeing, you know, a pretty significant correction in GameStop today, and yet the rest of the market's doing okay. It's actually right. rallying. I, I don't think there's any indication here that we have sort of a contagious event. Right. Um, and that there's any sort of larger market instability problem. I, I think we're functioning correctly. So, um, it's just kind of crazy. So how does the story end? I mean, is this something that we're going to continue to see because Wall Street bets on Reddit is is a thing and there's so much interest around it? Or are, is this going to be a flash in the pan? That's an interesting question. And I think some of that's going to play out in how badly some of these individual investors get hurt when mm. the stock comes down. Um, and I think the stock is going to come down. I don't think that's a controversial position. And I yeah. think that um, individuals are going to lose money here um, is not a controversial position. Uh, to the extent that people really get burned, I think we might see less excitement for jumping into another bubble in the future. Um, but at the same time, I think people are having fun here, um, <laughs> either fun just for fun's sake or fun to stick it to Wall Street. 
and I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of this, at least in the short term. It's interesting because I do feel like that there's a lot of um, big trading houses and firms and investment firms who often talk about, you know what, we need to you know figure out ways for alternative investments for it to be much more accessible to kind of the little guy and retail investors. So there's that argument on one hand, but as soon as kind of retail investors figure out how to, I guess, game the market, um, but it doesn't look like they're breaking the law, you know, everybody kind of gets upset. And I would point out that hypocrisy. Um, I'm, I'm pretty solidly in favor of giving retail investors the opportunity, both in the alternative investments front and here. Mm. Um, we need to make sure people are educated and understand the risks of the markets that they're playing in. And those risks are real. But giving them the opportunity to try, I, I think we should be permitting that on all fronts. Yeah, uh, I got to say, um, I'm just looking at the amount of my, the, the questions and things that are coming in on my Twitter feed because this is really resonating with a lot of people, Tim. Yeah, it is. And and, and look, I think there's a, a big part of this story is about the little guy versus you know yeah. the, the big guys and them like sticking it to the man and sticking it to those hedge funds. Well, somebody tweets me, you know, so should we have a law that bans people from going to Vegas so we can protect them from losing money? That's, like it's just yeah. There's, I know you're looking at me. No, I mean, I, I don't know the answer. This is like uncharted territory in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed that. Jennifer Schulp, she's uh, Director of Financial Regulation Studies over at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. She was a director at the department, blah, director, former director in the Department of Enforcement at FINRA. Listen, there's going to be lots of conversations about this uh, to come. So stay tuned, everybody. Buckle in because there's a lot more to come. <laughs> you're listening to Bloomberg Business. This week, and this is Bloomberg Radio. So we want to get to the big story of the day and really the week, and it's already going to be, as we said earlier, a story of the year. Let's get right to Interactors Brokers Chairman and Founder Thomas Petterfi. He is on the phone in Connecticut. Uh, Interactive Brokers, among the platforms that did start restricting trading of stocks that have run up rapidly, including GameStop. They did that earlier today. Uh, Thomas, good to have you here with Tim and myself. First of all, why did you stop the trades? What was the nail in the coffin that made you ultimately decide to do it? And I'm curious if you were getting calls from either clients, investors, or even your board that you had to do something. Uh, so first of all, I'm in sunny Palm Beach. Oh, Thank okay. You. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, we I was told there. Connecticut. I wish I was there too. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me onto the show. Yes. Uh, the answer is yes. So, uh, this stock today, game, stock, game, game, GME, uh, it was at one point as low as, two, as $112 and one point as high as $483. Currently, it is trading at two hundred and thirty-four dollars. Um, so, why did we uh, resort to these measures? It, we did because we are extremely concerned about the continuing viability of intermediaries, the clearing houses, and the brokers. Now, why is that? Because on every option contract, there is a buyer and a seller, so a number of for each number, each each option contract that that exists in the world, there is a loser and a and a winner. The broker stands between the broker and the clearinghouse stands between the winners and the losers. The broker has to collect from the losers, give it to the clearinghouse. The clearinghouse gives it to the winners broker and gives it to bro, winners broker gives it to the winner. Uh, 
the problem arises when the loser loses more money than is in his or her account. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, there are currently um, 3 million options contracts outstanding on gain. The average option contract, I, since the since stock has moved around so much, I estimate the average option contract is worth about $10,000. So on, on three million contracts, half of them are worthless, half of them are worth on the average of $10,000. That's, uh, that's $15 billion of, of winners and losers, right. right? So now the brokers have to collect from the losers and pay it to the winners. If they can't, they have to put up their own money, right? Right. So... Uh, luckily enough, we have a very large uh, um, capital base of $9 billion, and we have uh, automated liquidation systems, but many of other brokers do not have that. But, but so, can I, if I, Thomas, if I can break in, and we should point out that Interactive Brokers is a sponsor of Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. So it's not the case that traders were doing anything wrong or illegal. It's just a case of logistically there were going to be problems, right, in terms of clearing houses. So that's more an operational problem versus a market problem or traders doing something wrong, correct? No, 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 not correct. So, so short squeezes are illegal. Now, when, when you buy a stock for $300 that a month ago was worth a failing company, right, a, you know, a, basically a, a second-hand store for, for video games, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it wasn't really worth any, uh, much money. And it's not trading at, at $230, right? So your only motivation to buy that stock, which you know full well eventually will go down to $17, is, is that, I'm sorry, there is, I don't know what's happening. That's okay. We're all getting a lot of Skype calls at home when working from home these days. Yeah, right. Um, right. So you go ahead. Go ahead. I want you to finish that thought. Uh, if I may, if I may continue, please. So your only motivation to buy this stock of two hundred and thirty dollars could be to join the short squeeze, because why would this stock go up? Why is it worth two hundred and thirty dollars? It's worth you know under twenty dollars. Right. Right. Are you Are you guys closing out? Accounts? Are you closing closing out positions? We learned just minutes ago that Robinhood has told users that it may close some at risk positions. Thomas, I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can hear us. Yeah, I can hear you now. I just didn't hear you before. That at risk positions. What did you mean? Yeah, are you are you closing out any accounts? We did know that Robinhood says that it told users that it may close some at risk positions. Oh, we have we have closed thousands of positions. We have we have twenty as of yesterday morning. We had twenty seven thousand customers who were involved in in uh, GME stock, uh, either via the stock or via options. Is this many a, of them, of course. Yeah. Many many of them, especially since we have tend to have uh, professional customers that tend to be on the short side. So yes, we closed out many of those positions. And was a lot of the the positions that you closed out? I mean, I'm I'm curious about in terms of your business, how much is retail in investors, individual investors versus bigger institutional clients? 
So, well, it's hard to spell. Our our average client account is is uh, rough. It's just under three hundred thousand dollars. So they are not your regular moments pop uh, clients. But of course, many of them are smaller, and many of them are much bigger. But uh, three hundred thousand is just the average. We have a uh, one point one eight million customers. So, yeah. Hey, you know, Thomas, you know, it's hard and I think we're trying to get our head about it. I have lots of conversations with, you know, big name shops, too, and and investors who say, you know, we're increasingly trying to open up alternative investments to individual investors, give them access to the types of investments that the bigger institutional clients typically have. And yet I feel like when a smaller retail investor to some extent acts like one of the big guys, all of a sudden their hand gets slapped. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 so I don't think that's true. So short squeezes are not legal. Now, mm. maybe many of the long fear do not know that they are participating in a short squeeze. But uh, that, that, that's the only issue I see, that they inadvertently doing something that they shouldn't be doing. But it's, it's really stupid to look at a stock and buy it at $300, and you know that it's a, it's a little business, right? It's a, it's a corner store. Thomas, we only have uh, 15 seconds for this, but are you worried yeah. that there's going to be a PR impact from this and retail traders will go to other trading platforms? Uh, I don't think so, because our professional customer understands that we have to protect the marketplace for their sake and their money we have to protect. Do you think regulators, just quickly, 20 seconds, have to get involved from Congress and others? Uh, I think unless regulators come out and say that uh, trading should be in these stocks for liquidation only, yeah. it's and this is going to continue indefinitely, and that's not good. Thomas, I know it's been a busy day, uh, and we really appreciate you finding some time for us. Interactive Brokers Chairman and Founder Thomas Petterfee joining us on the phone. Interactive Brokers, a sponsor of Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.